2: I am Brian Sullivan, and tonight, depth ceiling whipsaw. Negotiations between both sides suddenly back on. We'll bring you the late breaking details from D.C. Rocket Envy NASA picking Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin to build the next moon trip. They didn't deliberately leave Elon Musk's SpaceX out in the cold. A Supreme Court victory and an AI push making it a big week for big tech. But are new rules coming which could spoil the fun? Speaking of smart computers, we're going to meet the company using AI to predict how much a movie might make, and we are going to put it to the test for the devious little game and the day that may have changed retail forever. We'll tell you about it. All that and much more ahead on this Friday. So belly up, buckle up. His last call is up right now. Happy Friday, everybody, and as always, good evening here in the East. Good afternoon to all of you out West. We're going to get to all those stories shortly, but first up, if you thought the banking mess was really, truly over, it may be time to reconsider. Bank deposits have now fallen to their lowest level in nearly two years. That is according to new data out just a short time ago from the Federal Reserve. Remember, partly it is that deposit flight that fueled the bank industry problems, either triggered by loss of faith in a bank, Or customers just seeking higher returns on their money elsewhere, like a money market or a CD. This new data comes after yet another volatile day for regional bank stocks. A report about yesterday's closed-door meeting between Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and top bank CEOs shook the sector today. Reports saying that Yellen told the executives that more bank mergers may be necessary to stabilize the industry. Unsurprisingly... Investors did not take that well, because saying there might be more merger need means some of these banks might be at risk of failing. That report sending regional bank stocks back into the red, all of them fell again today. And it kind of took the air out of what had been a rare, otherwise good week and strong gains for the sector. Still up on the week, but today was a big turnaround down. So is the damage really done or over? And will Janet Yellen and other top government officials fuel more uncertainty about the bank Industry's outlook let's take it to our kickoff panel tonight with us new york times correspondent and cbc contributor kate kelly who just confirmed that yellen story herself the founder of the bear traps report larry mcdonald and cbc's leslie picker thank you all for joining us on a friday we're live i know it's seven o'clock we appreciate it kate kelly what have you just learned
3: so, I've just learned that the report you were referencing was right. I mean, this definitely did come up at this meeting uh, with some banking CEOs and Treasury Secretary Yellen yesterday. It sounds like the debt ceiling was highly topical in that meeting, but in the course of it, she did talk about the fact that they continue to monitor the banking sector and further consolidation, inference there being there could be failures or teetering banks in need of resolution could happen. So as you noted, the banking sector reacted pretty negatively to that, particularly the regional banks, and it sparked additional worries uh, in the market and the economy. That said, Brian, I'm not sure this would have been a surprise to any of the bank CEOs in the meeting. And I think it's just one of these things that when it comes out of the Treasury Secretary's mouth, it takes on new urgency and sort of takes on a, a life of its own that perhaps didn't exist prior.
2: Well, it seems to me, Larry, that if if Janet Yellen is saying this to the big bank CEOs in the room, then what she's saying to them is, we expect you guys to step up if there's another problem. It it seemed almost, and of course, I wasn't in the room, but the way it was portrayed is almost not a threat, but definitely like, hey, Wall Street, you're going to help us out here. Well, you know, one thing, Brian, is in every
4: financial crisis, the truth bleeds out one drop at a time, and you have to look under the surface at kind of the indicators. I mean, what we're seeing in the market right now is some of the most disturbing trends underneath the surface since Lehman, since COVID. I mean, think of U.S. Bancorp. The put call activity for the month of June on the 25 strike is 33,000 contracts on the puts, 33,000, and only 300 on the calls. And then if you look at credit default swaps on U.S. Bank Corp., which is the fifth largest bank in the United States, they really haven't improved at all this week with, like you said, equities improving. So the the beast in the market, the serpent underneath the surface is telling us there's a significant drawdown coming in the near near future.
2: I think that's the that's the fear, Leslie, is that, you know, people say, why are you talking about the banks so much? I mean, maybe they don't care about the individual equities of certain banks in places they've never heard of. Or banks they've never heard of. But the reality is 70% of commercial real estate debt is held at many of these banks. They lend to small business. Retailers need them for liquidity things. This is a multi-sector story, I think.
5: Oh, absolutely. It has ripple effects or the potential to have ripple effects for the entirety of the economy. Um, and when you look at kind of what's going on with deposits, the fact that they're the lowest level in two years, you think back to what was happening two years ago. Well, we were still in the pandemic. There was still government stimulus. Rates were still low. Deposits did really well and banks did decently over the course of that period. Well, what's happened without that stimulus, uh, Customers and and consumers have worked through those deposit balances. So you're starting to see those go lower in kind of a broad-based way across the banking sector. So I think you're right pointing out just the deposits and the importance of deposits as we look at the health of these banks.
2: Yeah, Kate, in your reporting is-I mean, is anybody calling you or are you calling them or texting or whatever and them saying, you know, it's over. Everything's fine now. Because it seems like we've had a couple of these everything's fine moments. And then the next day, a bank stock falls 25%.
3: Right. No, nobody's saying that to me, Brian, to be clear. And I think what we've seen play out is sort of this period of like valleys and then plateaus or buttes or something like that. And I think we're in the latter right now. Like I was actually looking at the weekly deposit information from the Fed before this hit. And I noticed that despite the macro picture, which is significant, lowest level in two years, you don't see an enormous drop. From the prior week to this week in either large depositors or small ones i mean the trajectory is lower but it's not like a massive drop off it's more i think a couple of things one is the experience of silicon valley bank and then roughly a month later first republic bank tells us that you know we're just not necessarily out of the woods and thank goodness that despite the jitters and the, the contagion that did occur these resolutions were done in an orderly way. Now, I'm not giving it a pass. I know a lot of people are concerned about moral hazard and the way this was handled by the government, but nonetheless, it, it was orderly, right? Now we're in a sort of a breathing period. We don't know what's gonna be next, but we do know that some of these small depositors continue to like lose deposits in a worrisome fashion and that, that could be an issue. But I think the other thing hanging over everyone's head, and I'm sure our, my fellow panelists would agree, is the debt ceiling. I mean, we mm. pressed pause today. And that's a big worry. And my colleague, Jeff Summers, I was just looking at his piece about this. Listen to this for one second. While the impasse over the debt ceiling looms, the United States is seen in the 30 trillion market, trillion dollar market for credit default swaps as a riskier borrower than countries like Bulgaria, Croatia, Greece, Mexico and the Philippines. I mean, think about that.
2: Yeah, it's wild. It it is. And Mexico as well. We, We actually pointed that out last week. And I didn't know Bulgaria was in there. I didn't even know there were swaps on Bulgaria. But Larry McDonald, I mean, uh, we're not saying th- these things are going to happen. And I don't want you to go too down the weeds because it is Friday, right? <laughs> we don't want to be too wonky. But the debt ceiling thing is a big deal as well because Treasury may have to sell a bunch of debt, which is going is to decrease liquidity as well. I mean, I, I feel like there may be a storm coming. Not saying there is, but you can, you can maybe sense it.
4: Well, exactly. So when, when the Treasury in the first half of the year was holding down issuance, right? so they, they couldn't issue the normal bonds that they wanted to because of the debt ceiling, now they have to play, we're calculating about a $1.2 trillion catch-up in the second half of the year. So what might seem as good news when there's a resolution on the debt ceiling, there has to be a very sharp Catch up, and when you sell lots of treasuries in the market, you yeah. pull liquidity out of other areas. One thing that today, Brian, you know, everybody's talking about the banks, but the retailers today—you had Kohl's, um, you had Big Lots, you had all these retailers down anywhere from like Macy's four to eight percent on the lows, new lows, and so we're seeing a contagion from the banks into other parts of the market and new lows. We're talking about you know ret- retailers down some. 30, 40% since February, and you've got some of these FANG yeah. stocks that are up 40%. I, I, know, we gotta up 40%. I know we got to go. I know we
2: have to go, but Leslie, I'm going to go in with you. What's the next sort of big thing on your menu, your, the, the Leslie Picker watch list? What should our viewers be waiting for, <laughs> paying attention to?
5: Yeah, I mean, Monday is J.P. Morgan's Investor Day. So we'll be there there on site. This is important, obviously, because of J.P. Morgan's role in this crisis so far. They've been a major beneficiary. They got at that FDIC-assisted deal for First Republic. Uh, They've been a beneficiary of catching deposits that uh, saw outflows from banks that customers were more nervous about. They've so far raised their EPS uh, projections as a result of that. And they're the best-performing bank this year. Mm. So kind of homing in on on the the what they see, I think, will be really critical as we look ahead to kind of the broader sector, both big banks and small banks.
2: I, I had no idea that that was on Monday or that you were going to be there, but that was a good time to do a cheap plug for yourself on the air. Leslie Picker, I love it. I know, <laughs> sorry. Call <laughs> so a deep Brian, t- if it's any,
3: if it's any ad, I, I was going to bring <laughs> up the same thing. If you went to me for a final thought, I was going to say it'll be interesting to see Thank what you. Jamie Dimon says on Monday because he's at the center of all of this, right? He is. And he's a guy that loves to think yeah. of out and share his thoughts on the markets and the broader economy. He does it every single year in the shareholder letter. And he was in that meeting with Janet Yellen. So, Leslie, I look forward to your dispatches from that event.
2: I I feel like he's the big kid from that 79 movie, My Bodyguard, (laughs) My Bodyguard. If anybody remembers that, I feel like he was the big kid with the army jacket. Uh, Larry, Kate, Leslie, appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Now to a way, sully side up, it was probably a good week for your money if you were invested in big tech. Dow in the S&P, look at that. They rose down a little bit. But the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ up 2.9%. Here's a little nugget you can use at the dinner table tonight to amaze your friends and family. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ posted their biggest weekly gains since March. Now the studs and duds of the week. The biggest stud was a regional bank. Comerica, 19.9%, followed by a few more banks. Not all good, though. The biggest money loser. Solar Company, first solar down 12%, concerned about how new solar sourcing rules could impact its business. Right now, China has solar made, they've got their hand on everything solar. Can we compete this week? The market may have said no. All right, one block down, many to go, and up next, a sudden plot twist in the debt ceiling negotiations, the breaking details, next. Plus, call it Rocket Envy. Jeff Bezos, Blue Origin, scoring a historic win All right. Breaking news on the debt ceiling debate. A kind of a sudden plot twist in the negotiations that appeared to have derailed earlier today. Let's find out what's going on. Kayla Tausche joining us now live with the latest. Kayla.
7: Well, Brian, negotiators are planning to meet again tonight, according to comments late this evening from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And a White House official confirms that negotiators are meeting uh, really could, ha- could be happening right now as we speak. And this is happening after hitting an impasse earlier today with McCarthy's Deputy Congressman Garrett Graves saying the two sides were pressing pause and that the White House was being unreasonable. McCarthy said the White House wouldn't budge on spending. Yeah, Something I mean, yesterday, done. yesterday, I, yesterday I
8: really felt
9: we were at the location where I could see the path. The, the White House is just, Look, we can't be spending more money next year. We have to spend less than we spent the year
2: before. It's pretty easy.
7: The White House, though, blamed Republicans. uh, An official telling me the president knows the GOP doesn't have enough votes to pass a deal through both chambers and that some of the administration's priorities are needed to deliver Democrats, this official telling me. Republicans can't get everything they want. Now, the far wings of both parties expressing angst about what negotiators are discussing. The conservative House Freedom Caucus demanding that the original GOP bill from several weeks ago be the end goal of these negotiations. And then tonight, 66 progressive Democrats from the House demanding the president invoke the 14th Amendment instead of compromising, writing, Surrendering to these extremist demands also sets a dangerous precedent that emboldens Republicans to pursue additional anti-democratic hostage-taking. Now, aides have been briefing President Biden around the clock in Japan, where he's attending the G7 summit, and is slated to hold a press conference Sunday before returning to Washington to revisit these talks. And to be sure, some of the negotiators' public posturing may be to appease those farther wings of the party, showing them they didn't bend without a fight. But it all comes as the clock is ticking with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen telling bank CEOs yesterday the deadline is, in fact, June 1st, Brian, and that is not flexible.
2: Yeah, but it just seems, Kayla, what you read, extremist demands, using the term hostage-taking. I mean, it does not that doesn't sound like they're close.
7: Well, it... it You have to read between the lines, Brian, because a lot of this is posturing. Remember, I mean, this was never going to be a deal that was passed through both chambers with these far sides of the party. And and if you are reaching a compromise where each side is having to agree to something that it necessarily doesn't like to get a deal, well, naturally, you're gonna be angering the base of your party. But I think the view is that so long as the center of both parties can be delivered, that it can get enough votes to pass the House and it can get the 60 votes needed to pass the Senate. Now, of course, we are not in the room with the negotiators. There are a handful of very thorny issues. And of course, what they want, what Republicans have wanted was a 10 year deal to lower government spending substantially. And now what re- what Democrats have been pushing for is a two year deal to raise the debt limit and to essentially uh, pursue some budget cuts within that, but not touching some of President Biden's signature priorities. So, yes, they are still far apart, but they are back in the room tonight and uh, the clock is ticking. Right.
2: 90 percent of winning is just showing up. So at least they're back in the room. Kayla Tausche, thank you very much. Joining us now is California Congressman Daryl Issa. Congressman Issa, good to chat with you again. Um, Hey, you're you're as Hamilton, they saying you're in the room where it happens. Uh, Where do we stand right now?
10: Well, I I was fortunate enough to be yesterday evening with Garrett Graves, who. You talked about the center. He is the center of the Republican Conference. Uh, He's neither extreme left nor right of our party, Uh, and he was he went there with a simple position that the conference had given him, which was we'd spend next year what we spent last year. uh, In other words, the 2022 budget. Uh, That's our starting position. The president's starting position is obviously a very large growth, but there's certainly room. Uh, to come to some middle ground, as long as we understand that the rate of growth over 2022 is what keeps us in deep deficit. Um, you know, Speaker McCarthy is uh, in constant contact with Garrett. Garrett is as easy to deal with and as honest a broker as you could have. And that's what we need right now at the Mm -hmm. tables is people on both sides to tone down a little bit. And let's talk about where we can save our country from economic ruin.
2: Is it so I want to ask you that because, you know, we get tweets out from the White House and, and they say eight million jobs lost, according to Moody's analytics, economic disaster. I, we, we have defaulted four times in the past on, in certain ways, not exactly analogous to this. I, I get that. Do you really believe it is economic disaster if it lasted a month or two?
10: Yeah, I do. I do believe that uh, the, the confidence in the United States as the safe and appropriate place to come and the normal order let's remember one thing if we shut down for a month so to speak what we have to do is we have to go through the process of getting going again including selling our, our bonds on the global market and all of that is sort of like coming out of covid it was easier to go into covid than it is to come out and it's one of the reasons that the speaker in the conference chose the 2022 budget which really was uh, fairly ambitious. It was a large growing budget. It was voted by the Democrats. It was what they wanted to spend. Mm. So we're negotiating from a budget Republicans didn't pick, but that looks like a good starting point for some compromise.
2: In 2006, we had a debt ceiling debate, came down to the wire, ended up passing the Senate 52 to 48. Three GOP actually voted no. Every Democrat voted no as well, including then Senator Biden. That's when the debt was at $9 trillion. It's $31 trillion now. What I'm saying is it it seems like the president's saying we can't default now, but in 2006, a no vote was fine. How much pure politicking is this?
10: Well, there's no question. It's always politicking. Uh, Look, every president, uh, dating back to President Reagan, remember, President Reagan once vetoed the defense bill because it wasn't large enough uh... there has to be some back and forth the one thing we all understand is until you get to a a situation like that everybody says well congress controls the purse strings and then you get in these negotiations and the executive branch acts like they control the purse strings they really don't it is up to the house and the senate i'm disappointed that schumer and the the democrats in the senate haven't taken a more active role in some negotiation but it is as it is Garrett Graves is uh, there, and he will be there, and we will stay at the table, I'm, I'm absolutely assured, uh, until a deal is met or until we run out of time on what we think is a pretty reasonable starting point. D-
2: Disneyland, obviously not in your district, but my guess is, given the cost of living around Disneyland, there's probably some of your constituents in Temecula who commute to work at Disney because they can actually afford a home there, and they do the 60-mile or whatever drive it is. What's your take on this fight between Disney and DeSantis?
10: Well, look, initially the fight probably made sense uh, that uh, you know taxes should be paid and, and you shouldn't be above being governed within your state. Having said that, I think all of us understand Disney is a major employer, both here in California and in Florida. Uh, they are an economic engine. Uh, they've been good stewards of the land and, and the places that they do business. And so it's time to move move on to uh, they have a right as a private company to do things differently than we might like. So I'm hoping it comes to a a peaceful end soon.
2: Maybe we'll see a, a Disneyland Temecula annex.
10: They're, we're welcome. If they want to expand in East County, uh, Riverside or San Diego County, they're welcome to come. We've got land and we've got people that are good, hard workers.
2: But the weather is terrible down in San Diego. We know that, Congressman Issa. I'm kidding. Oh, yeah. You know, it's horrible. famously
10: terrible. 75. We, the and, Arizonans come here all summer because it's so bad. Uh, yeah,
2: it's 75 <laughs> and sunny and no humidity all year long. It's tremendous. Uh, Congressman Darrell Issa, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks.
10: Look all right. Forward to it. Welcome. See
2: all right. All right. Time now for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories that you might be talking about tomorrow or Monday morning and an about face from Mark Zuckerberg's net worth. Check this out. The Meta CEO adding 44 billion to his fortune after a dismal 2022, 44 billion this year. That is the largest jump in wealth by any billionaire so far in 2023. It's because Meta stock has surged. Ninety seven percent. Almost doubled this year. Analysts attribute the increase to the company's cost cutting measures, sadly, and to refocus on its current social media platforms rather than the metaverse. This coming as meta is reportedly also working on a competitor to Twitter, which could roll out in the summer. Finally, the brakes are being pulled on a major airline deal. A federal judge ordering American Airlines and JetBlue to end their operating agreement in the northeast. The Justice Department sued both airlines, arguing their partnership was anti-competitive. American and JetBlue have argued it helps them compete with larger airlines in the Northeast, like Delta and United. Both airlines' lawyers criticizing the judge's decision tonight, saying they are evaluating their next legal steps. All right, our next step is after this commercial break, and it's one giant leap for Jeff Bezos over Elon Musk, as NASA picked a new favorite in the race back to the moon. Hi, Welcome back to Last Call. Jeff Bezos must be over the moon tonight, not because he's worth like $100 zillion. But his space company, Blue Origin, just beat out Elon Musk's SpaceX. Blue Origin getting a $3.4 billion contract from NASA to put astronauts back on the moon. The rocket company will provide the lunar lander for the Artemis 5 mission set to launch in six years. It is worth noting that SpaceX was the first to land a $3 billion contract from NASA in the race back to the moon. That was back in 2021 for the Artemis 3 lunar mission. So what changed between 3 and 5 besides 4? Was this a pure business decision for NASA or could it have been a personal snub of Elon Musk? Let's get to our panel on all this. Former NASA astronaut Leroy Chow joining us again. In CBC space reporter, Michael Sheets and Andrew Channon, co-founder and CEO of Procure Holdings, which has a space-focused ETF. Leroy, I'm gonna ask you probably uh, an indelicate question, okay, given that uh, from what we know of it, there's not a lot there. Do we need to go back to the moon at all in the first place?
9: It depends what you wanna do. Of course, if you wanna continue exploring space, it makes sense to go back to the moon. There are a number of scientific reasons to go back. And if you're looking to eventually get humans to Mars, it's a great place to go do a lot of things, including develop all of your hardware for habitats, landers, uh, rovers, uh, spacesuits. It's a great place to train astronauts because the moon is a very similar uh, environment in low pressure, dusty, low gravity compared to Mars. And it, the advantage is it's only three or four days away if you need to get your crew back. So there are a number of reasons for exploring the moon. But if you want to shut down exploration altogether, you could just say, "Well, you know, we don't need to do either." But that's not just the, that's just not the way humans are.
2: No, we always we want to go keep going. I'm, you know, get maybe go to Mars one day to your point and land. And Michael, you know, listen, we anytime Elon Musk is involved in anything, it becomes like a story. But I, I do wonder, not to just blow this whole segment out of the water, so to speak, which is uh, out of the moon landing, um, NASA wanted to give it to, to multiple people, right? They, they didn't want to just pick one, but they had an issue the first time. Absolutely, Brian. This is NASA back on track, because that was their whole plan, but the budget didn't allow for it to so in with the most competitive bid. Michael, we got, we got, I, I, I think your, your Wi-Fi is on the moon. Reboot. Control all. Delete. <laughs> Re- reboot it. We'll go to you. Uh, how big of a deal is this, um, Andrew? But what do you what do you think is realistically going to happen here? And by the way, do you see a SpaceX going public anytime soon?
11: You know, it's been rumored about whether spin-offs or IPOs of the whole company may be in the future for SpaceX, but it seems like that might be uh, a ways away. You know, things have been teased where, you know, once SpaceX makes it to Mars, possibly. However, you know, this is a, a big step for NASA. It's a it's a big step for the US government because diversification just like with investing is, is key. If you give all of your contracts to one company and they fail, you'll have nothing when it comes time due mm. to actually deliver on those contracts. So this is, uh, you know, very important for the U.S. government because we also want to see a really strong domestic space industry. So being able to provide these companies with this vital funding is going to allow there to be multiple players. Where in the future, if NASA or the U.S. government or the military want to contract with someone, they'll have those options. And hopefully, uh, you know, price and quality yeah. will be major factors in that decision.
2: Well said. Got you back, Michael Sheets. I mean, is it a, is there another player out there or is it literally just we we have a choice between these two and that's it? This is really absolutely, uh, Brian, NASA going back on track. There was another player in this competition and the first competition, which was Dynetics owned by Leidos. Uh They lost out now twice in these competitions. We'll see uh, whether they continue developing their own lander and, and try to compete for future contracts. Or- for what NASA really wants is setting up the future because they don't want to just go back to the moon a single time. They want to go back to the moon annually. They want to go back to the moon regularly. And that means having multiple companies, in this case, SpaceX and Blue Origin, lined up to be bidding for contracts and trying to you know, uh, advance technologies mm-hmm. and come down on price. So that's really setting up the future here. You know, Leroy, you did what, 34 missions as an astronaut yourself? Two questions. If offered tomorrow to go up, land on the moon with Blue Origin, would you take it, number one? And number two, when do you think we're going to see arguably a super wealthy American, a non-pure astronaut, not go to space, but walk on the moon? well that's a pretty tough question actually i flew four missions into space uh but yes i would love i to just promoted you by 30 it's fine it's tv we're allowed hyperbole
9: <laughs> well I, w- I would love to go to the moon it was the apollo 11 moon landing that inspired me all those years ago when i was a little kid to want to be an astronaut myself so i would personally love a chance to go to the moon when are we going to have the first uh quote unquote tourist on the moon Ooh, hard to say um but after we have a commercial capability then, then it's opened up. So if we were able to land humans on the moon with either the SpaceX lander, which is, of yeah. course is farther along since it's being worked on already, uh, then it becomes a matter of who wants to pay for that, uh, that uh, opportunity to go and land on the moon, uh, much like SpaceX is operating their Dragon spacecraft on a purely commercial basis now too. So uh, we might see a billionaire on the moon as soon as say, uh, you know, in the next five years or so. But... You know,
2: hard to yeah. hard to say. There, there was a there was a guy in a show that had better ears than I do, Andrew. Who said, "Live long and prosper." So let's talk about prospering. How can our viewers and listeners make money off of space travel? Not spend money—that's easy. Make money.
11: Well, you know, space travel is just one very small part of the overall space economy. You have numerous projections from major research houses um, projecting out to twenty forty, 2040, twenty forty five, between over $1 trillion uh, annually to $2.7 trillion, and there are many other ranging um, ideas there. But communications is one of those areas that people believe will be one of the larger growth drivers to get to those trillion-dollar-plus annual economies for the space industry. So for what we have, UFO, the world's first pure play uh, space uh, global space ETF, uh, you get over 30 companies from around the world that are specializing in various areas. When you look at this contract, yes, Blue Origin's private, but there are companies like Boeing and Lockheed which make up the the Blue Origin national team that are also winners in this contract as well that are also holdings within UFO.
2: Good stuff. Andrew, Michael, Leroy, appreciate it all. Gentlemen, thank you very much. All right, still ahead. Big tech should be popping the champagne thanks to a Supreme Court decision this week, but could Congress spoil the party Ajit Pai, the former head of the FCC, will join you next. All right, happy Friday, everybody. Your exclusive insider buying segment is back. This is where we highlight the top five stocks being bought the most by their C-suite level executives with their own money. These are not stock buybacks, but executives dropping their own money on their own stock And as always, the info comes with our thanks to Verity Data. And this week is a first of its kind. The five companies we are highlighting have insider buys worth more than $78 million total dollars. In fact, the smallest insider buy this week would be the biggest buy on a normal week. So this is literally a big money week in the two plus years or whatever we have been doing it. And as always, we're going to count you down five to one. All right, let's go. The fifth biggest insider buy of the week, $7.6 million at Royalty Pharma. That is a New York-based biotech. Stock four, that's point-of-sale company Toast. You know, they're the ones that make all those credit card machines that you swipe and they spin around and you always, always, always leave a tip. A $12.5 million insider buy there. Third biggest insider buy, Luminar Tech. That is the LiDAR maker for autonomous driving. and The founder and CEO, Austin Russell, snapping up $21.3 million worth, and that's that's the third biggest buy. Not at the top two of the week, and it is nearly a tie. Stock 2, beaten up Dish Network. A co-founder buying $18.6 million worth of the stock, but he keeps on buying. He's bought a total of $82 million in the past two years, but that has been a tough trade. Dish has broken down, down 67% in the past 12 months, but the insider continues to buy. And without further ado, the top insider buy this week. Energy Transfer, the pipeline company founder and executive chair, Kelsey Warren, buying another $18.63 million worth of the pipeline company. Warren, if you've been following this, he has been on a buying binge. He has bought $161 million worth of his own stock in just the past 12 months. That is far, far higher than even the next closest insider. Now, ET shares have not done much, but they do kick off a 10% yield, so in a way, He's buying, but he's actually paying himself a fortune in dividends. There you go. The names this week, Royalty Pharma, Toast, Luminar, Dish Network, and Energy Transfer. Reminder, we're going to try to bring you this nearly every Friday, except during earnings season, when there is a quiet period on insider buying. A segment, by the way, you're only going to see here on Last Call and on CNBC Pro later tonight or tomorrow. So sign up today. In the meantime, a sector that's had a big week is big tech. Take a look at these numbers. Meta up nearly 5%, Alphabet 4, Microsoft 3, all three outperforming the S&P 500. What exactly is behind the rally? Well, two reasons most likely, the AI frenzy. By the way, we should just change the name of the show to Last Call AI. The second, Supreme Court decision that continues to protect tech platforms from liability over what users post goes around what they call Section 2 30. For more on this, bring in Ajit Pai is the former FCC chair. Uh, chair Pai, good to have you on uh, on last call. Do you agree with the Supreme Court? Uh, they didn't overrule it or, or or void it or anything. They just chose not to address it. Was that the right call by SCOTUS?
1: I think in this case, it was the right call. These are very sad situations, terrorist attacks that Uh, resulted in death. And the ISIS group that was responsible for those attacks, of course, used some of the social media platforms that were then sued. And that case ultimately was resolved by the Supreme Court, both Google and Twitter. And so I think on the law, the glass half full interpretation for the tech companies would be Section 230 lives to see another day. Companies are not responsible for essentially the passive uh, offering of their platforms for use by anybody unfortunately in some cases involving uh, terrorist use. But I think the glass half empty interpretation is the much more interesting one here. Justice Thomas has long expressed skepticism about when tech platforms do something more active, when they take down content, and does that violate Section 230? And what was interesting is that in the oral argument in the Google case, Justice Kagan said, Every other industry has to internalize the cost of its conduct, its affirmative acts. Why does the tech industry get a pass? And then the Twitter case, buried at the end of the opinion, is a two-paragraph concurring opinion by Justice Jackson, which he says, don't interpret this case to mean more than it means. In other cases, with different facts, different records, we might reach a different conclusion. And so I think the glass half-empty interpretation is that when big tech platforms affirmatively do something the Supreme Court might be willing and able to take another look at this.
2: case. Yeah. And that's I think that's a critical point, too, because it, it, to your point, uh, it is sort of narrow in what they were looking at in the case that had standing brought before them, because you could also make the argument if I buy a food product sold by a third party vendor. OK, on Amazon, I consume the food product and I die. I get sick. It's poisoned. It's bad. I guarantee you somebody's going to go after Amazon and say, well, it wasn't your food product, but yet you're the platform. We, we, we had a reliance on the quality. Is that a fair analogy on this? Because they say, well, we can't control it. It's not us. Uh, that's that's
1: essentially the rationale the Supreme Court had. Justice Thomas's opinion for a unanimous court said that uh, your cellular networks carry all kinds of traffic and people don't sue or can't sue the cellular network for certain traffic that ends up resulting in unlawful action. And so it's simply the passive offering of a service to the general public doesn't result in liability. And so that's why I think these cases, while very unfortunate, of course, from a legal perspective were relatively straightforward. I think the more interesting case is going to be if the Supreme Court decides to take up a case involving content moderation where the social media platforms are affirmatively doing something. And then the question is, does Section 230 protect them when they are taking down content? For example, uh, we don't want political speech of this kind or that kind. Those are the types of cases I think the Supreme Court uh, might reach a more uh, interesting decision on.
2: Do you, would you agree? I mean, listen, obviously, it's a nonpartisan show. But, you know, there's been criticism on both sides about social media's role in, in the last election, probably more concerned about the next, uh, what might have been around the pandemic speech that may or may not have been suppressed by certain social media sites. Do they have, in your view, too much freedom, not enough freedom? How does the Musk sale buy of Twitter change the game in your mind?
1: I think there's no question that it has changed the game substantially. The social media platform that you mentioned, Twitter, uh, it is much more open to different points of view than it was previously, regardless of political affiliation. I think it's indisputable now that a certain points of view that would have resulted in either the content itself being taken down or the entire account being suspended For better or worse, uh, Elon Musk has embraced a more open uh, approach to that. But more generally speaking, I think you see a broad skepticism now in the halls of Congress among both parties and among the American people that uh, these platforms increasingly are a digital public square. And to the extent we don't have transparency into understanding how they make decisions or why, there is a basic question. What is the nature of Section 230 uh, protection in 2023 as opposed to 1996 when the law was adopted?
2: Yeah, and it just seems amazing that we're on this law that was written. It was seven words in 1996 when we had dial-up internet on AOL, Netscape basically just rolling out, and here we are still talking about it. Very quickly, do you support Montana's decision to ban TikTok for everybody as of January 1st?
1: Well, I certainly think that TikTok presents serious national security concerns, and it is no surprise then that federal agencies and state agencies have been limiting, if not banning, the use of TikTok on devices that are issued by the state agencies. There are some First Amendment considerations that might come into play with respect to Montana's decision, and I haven't had a chance to study yet uh, how to match uh, the national security concerns with the First Amendment protections. Well, why would it be a First uh, Amendment? Activated? I don't
2: understand why it would be a First Amendment issue when you can you can have free speech on many of the other platforms, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, email. whatever. I mean, you know, whatever it might be, it's it's one platform. I, that's where I guess that that right. that argument vexes me a little bit.
1: Yeah, well, certainly, uh, to the extent there's a compelling governmental interest here involving national security, courts might be a little more uh, lenient than they otherwise would be to the, a state government or the federal government itself taking an action like this. Mm-hmm. I just haven't had a chance to study uh, the First Amendment issues at play, uh, which are you know drawn a longstanding body of law. But uh, to my, in my view, at least, I think the federal government and state government of Montana are correct yeah. in having concern about TikTok. It's eminently clear at this point that. Uh, there's something different about this platform that people need to look at.
2: Well, it's controlled and run in a country that some might consider adversarial to the interests of the United States. But uh, for the 16 or 17 TikTok users of Montana, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be, you know, as of January 1st. <laughs> Chair Pie, we appreciate it. Ajit Pie of the FCC. All right, on deck. It's artificial intelligence coming soon to a theater near you. And we're going to show you how and play a little game coming up. the last nine fast and furious movies had you falling in love boy you're in luck this weekend universal's fast 10 is now officially out in theaters universal of course owned by our parent company comcast now fast 10 is just one of the many blockbusters aiming to make a splash this summer and help to come back for going to the movies actually going to the movies so how much are some of these movies expected to make at the box office well let's bring in david steinberg he is the CEO of Zeta Global, They're an AI software company using their technology to predict, in part, in this and for this segment, whether a movie will be a hit or a flop, or sort of determine how much money it's going to make. Uh, thanks for joining us again, David, on Last Call. We, we got a little game coming, but in 10 or 15 seconds, how does your software work? What are you using it to figure out? Well, thank you, Brian. This is certainly not our day job, but it's the funnest
8: part of what we do. Traditionally, we use artificial intelligence and huge pools of data, call it trillions of marketing signals, to help large enterprises more cost efficiently manage their marketing and CRM. But as a part of that, we're seeing what 250 million Americans are consuming from a content perspective and what they're sharing and what they're writing. So
2: we're able to see what Americans are talking about as a byproduct. Mm-hmm. All right, so what we did was we took, you know, some of the movie experts and what some of these movies coming out, what the over-under on how much they're going to make at the box office at the end of the run may be. And the first movie, of course, is Fast 10. And the projection, according to Screen Rant, is $900 bucks. Is your software, are you taking the under or the over? We're going way
8: under on that way one, under. Ryan. You know the Way under. We we saw a thirty percent decline in online interest to this film from the last film. You know, Fast and Furious Nine, and Fast and Furious Nine did about seven hundred and sixty-four million. So, you know, I I I I I guess you've got to adjust for timing. But we're going under with this
2: one. Wow. Well, there is a new Indiana Jones movie coming out. I was unaware of this It's Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny with uh, with Harrison Ford still is the action here. The projection, David, nine hundred and fifty million under over. Brian, you might be the only one who
8: didn't know about it. Me, too, by the way. But we saw a 40 percent increase in people reading and sharing about Indiana Jones. Plus, it is. Harrison Ford's last time as Indy, we see this as even though they're going for a massive projection, which is, I think the last movie did seven or 800 million with mediocre reviews. Uh, we think this one's gonna be way over the 950 that's being projected.
2: Well, we're gonna, what we're gonna do, David, we're gonna wait till these runs end, we're gonna tabulate it, we're gonna bring you back and remind you of your answers and we'll see if you chose wisely. David Steinberg is at a global. Thank you. We're going to be right back after this. All right, Welcome back to last call tonight. We are putting a spotlight on small business lending and specifically those businesses owned by members of the Asian Asian American or Pacific Islander community. Kate Rogers joining us now with more on this side of the story. Kate.
0: Hi, Brian. Fed data show that Asian-owned businesses were more likely to rely on their own funds for financial struggles and were more likely than white owners to say that access to capital was a challenge. It's something that Jay Lee experienced when getting his small business Noon, a Korean gastropub, off the ground in 2019.
11: The bank wouldn't loan me money. I, I had, it was difficult even, you know, uh, finding, finding other resources. And, um, And ultimately it came down to me, um, just putting in everything I had, borrowing a little bit from my parents and my brother, but we needed more.
0: He turned to Renaissance, which serves low to moderate income communities and immigrant small business owners in New York. Since 2018, the group has provided more than 2,000 AAPI owners with more than $20 million in loans and grants. Brian Chunton and Pei Wei also received assistance from Renaissance for their restaurant, Zab Zab in Queens. They were named a best new restaurant in New York City by The New York Times just last year. So when
8: you go talk to them about borrowing, and they say, "What kind of business you're in? You're in know, a restaurant. It's high risk business. So a lot of them uh, don't want to give you that
0: funding." Now, the Center for Responsible Lending is urging for disaggregated data to understand how different minority groups are receiving funding and how to best serve them moving forward. Brian, back over to you. All
2: right, Kate Rogers. Thank you very much. I got to leave it there because we do have some more breaking news on the debt ceiling negotiations. According to Reuters, this just crossing right now. The meeting at the U.S. Capitol between White House aides is over. Republican negotiators and the White House aides, that meeting done. And Reuters saying that at least according to their sources, no progress was cited. That according to Republican Congressman Patrick McHenry speaking with Reuters, I think. McHenry said that House Speaker McCarthy will now be briefed on the status of the negotiations. But again, some breaking news there. But according to Reuters, the meeting tonight, that we just told you about at the top of the show, is over. And that no progress in the debt ceiling negotiations was cited. They continue to talk, hopefully, another day. All right, let's leave it with this. Do you know what happened 22 years ago? Today, the first ever Apple store opened up. It was in McLean, Virginia, of course, a wealthy D.C. suburb. And here's a video, Steve Jobs showing off the store all the way back in 2001. Every product we make is in this first 25% of the store. You can see the whole product line.
4: And as you see up on the ceiling, we've even labeled the sections. Home, music, kids, genius on this side, and pro, movie, photos, and et cetera on
2: this side. So the first 25% shows you our entire product line. I just love the max in the background. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Take care.
6: CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.